This is The Guardian. Today, how Yevgeny Prigozhin went from selling hot dogs to the leader of an army of Russian prisoners in Ukraine. Last week, Russia had a rare victory in Ukraine. Russia's defense ministry is claiming that it has taken control of the mining town of Soledad in eastern Ukraine. But the man speaking, announcing his forces had taken the town of Soledad and celebrating it with his fighters, isn't a Russian soldier. He's not even a member of the government. His name is Yevgeny Prigozhin. He's this notorious kind of uh, private military contractor. Positioning himself as both a savior of the war for Moscow and the critic in chief of Russia's military establishment. He said that he had single-handedly taken that city with his own private army. And what's really incredible is that the fighters he leads in Ukraine, the Wagner Group, they're mostly convicted criminals, expendable men recruited straight from jail and used as cannon fodder. By some estimates, there are up to 50,000 Wagner mercenaries fighting in Ukraine. According to Western officials, they make up a staggering 25% of total Russian combatants, an army within an army. The fight over Ukraine this past year and this past decade has changed so many lives. But for some, it's been an opportunity. Prigozhin was Putin's caterer. Now, he sits at the top of a group the US says is a global criminal empire with a 50,000-strong private army inside Ukraine. He spent years denying any connection to mercenary activity and went to vast lengths to threaten to sue anyone who suggested that he had any connection. But not anymore. Over months of reporting, Guardian journalists have built up the fullest picture yet of who Yevgeny Prigozhin is, how he got to this point, and what he may do next. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Putin's chef became the second most powerful man in Russia. Piotr Sawyer, you cover Russian affairs for The Guardian. I want you to start by telling me about the crime that first landed Yevgeny Prigozhin in jail. So Prigozhin was born in 1961 in St. Petersburg. We don't know very much about his upbringing. We know he went to sort of a sports college uh, where he was uh, pretty good in martial arts and, and skiing, but sort of never went professional. And, you know, as a teenager, he got into petty crime. And we know this because of court orders that we've seen at The Guardian. One crime in particular led him to prison. This was on an evening in March 1980. Uh, an 18-year-old Prigozhin and his three friends uh, left the St. Petersburg Cafe and spotted a woman walking alone in a dark street. One of Prigozhin's buddies distracted the woman by asking a cigarette. As she went to open her purse, Prigozhin arrived behind her, grabbed her neck, squeezed her until she lost consciousness. God. And then... Um, they took off her shoes, 
removed their gold earrings and ran away. So at that young age, he was showing signs of being a thug and a criminal. He was, yeah. How much time did he spend in prison and what happened when he was released? Uh, so he was sentenced to 13 years in jail uh, in 1981. Hmm. He was released in 1990, so he didn't serve his full uh, sentence. He served almost a decade. He was released as part of Gorbachev amnesty programs. And then he was released in 1990 into this sort of new world. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lured for the last time. And an era comes to an end. I am ceasing my activities in the post of president of the USSR. As the Soviet Union was falling apart, there was all these sort of business opportunities in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. Well, it's been 14 years in the making, and today, finally, McDonald's threw open the doors to its first restaurant in Moscow. And I think this is where his sort of entrepreneurial, creative nature really set in. This woman doesn't know what she just ate, but she says it was unusual and delicious. We're all hungry in this city, she says. We need more of these places. There's nothing in our stores or restaurants. And his first business, funnily enough, was uh, selling hot dogs on the streets of, uh, yeah, hot dogs on, on the street of Petersburg. He was saying that he was cooking those hot dogs at home with his father and then just selling them on the streets and apparently making pretty good money. From sort of the hot dog business, Prigozhin jumped into supermarket chains. Uh, I think he quickly realized, I mean, these were the early 90s. Russians were looking for Western products. He opened up a chain of supermarkets in, in St. Petersburg. They quickly grew these supermarkets. And at some point, he was you know, already becoming more and more powerful. You know, we spoke with a businessman at the time who knew him well, uh, who said that he was relentless, hardworking, creative. Sort of everything you needed to succeed in the 90s in sort of the very rough period of the post-Soviet Union. But his real breakthrough came when he started opening up restaurants. Particularly, he opened up a restaurant called Staga Tamorzhna, or in English, Old Customs House. Uh, and this became sort of the best restaurant in St. Petersburg. All the um, rich, glamorous and important people of St. Petersburg were attending the restaurant. And among them was also young Vladimir Putin. And so this restaurant, Old Customs House, proves to be pretty fateful for the Prigozhin story. It's because it attracts a lot of important people. And one of them is the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg at the time, Vladimir Putin. What happens, Pyotr, when their paths cross? Uh, Putin took a liking to Prigozhin. And they've really struck up a friendship that has lasted for 30 years now. As Putin took power in 2000, he kept on coming back to Prigozhin's restaurants. And it wasn't just old customs house. Uh, he bought an old ship, turned it into a restaurant in St. Petersburg. And that was used sort of as a place where Putin met many, many important guests, including... Uh, first, I'd like to congratulate President Putin for being the only person that caught a fish today. George Bush. Uh, we've caught one fish, but that was a team, uh, team, <laughs> team effort, effort. And uh, the merit <laughs> goes to the captain of... Very the, thoughtful of, of you. And if you look at images from that time, it really feels like you're playing a game of where's Wally, but instead of where's Wally, it's where's Evgeny, because he's always sort of lurking in the background. I think this really sort of leverages his standing in, in, in Putin's uh, rank. By this point, 
Yevgeny Prigozhin owns restaurants. He's close to Vladimir Putin. He's winning contracts to provide catering to the Russian government, to the military, to schools. How does he go from there to running his own private army? Yeah, so this is a very good question. Um, so obviously, after his uh, the restaurants, he's, he saw catering as his next move, and he started to win millions and millions of contracts within the Russian education system and also within the Russian government. And he started to cater all Putin's events. And, and that's why he became so known as Putin's chef. But from there, obviously, the transition to having your own private military companies is pretty big. And this is where Ukraine comes in. Russian troops moving swiftly to take control of military bases in Crimea, where voters decided to rejoin Russia. So for Prigozhin, this new opportunity arose uh, when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 and then intervened in eastern Ukraine. Putin denied that regular troops had been involved in either cases. And the Kremlin started to think of how they could make their deniability slightly more plausible. And this is where Prigozhin comes in. Prigozhin sat down with uh, senior defense officials and pitched their idea of starting a private military company. It didn't have a name back then. That would eventually intervene in Ukraine. I had no idea that it was back in 2014 in Ukraine that Wagner was born and now eight or nine years later, it's a place where they're establishing themselves as a key force in Russia. But back then, what was the value of creating a private military company? What was the problem that Prigozhin was helping Putin to solve? Yeah, I think the, the most obvious problem he was trying to solve for Putin is how can Russia influence Ukraine without actually being there? At that time, Russia was still sort of afraid of Western condemnation of their actions in Ukraine. They were scared of sanctions. So they were looking for other ways to influence Ukraine, hybrid tactics. And private military companies turned out to be the perfect solution for this. Prigozhin really, you know, his, all our sources tell us that his uh, intuition is very strong and very powerful. And I think he realized this was the moment for him to capitalize on Putin's desire to sort of influence Ukraine without actually sending his own forces there. But Prigozhin had never been a soldier. He had never run a private military company before. What do you think Vladimir Putin saw in him and in this idea? I think Putin saw that Prigozhin a man that gets things done. He's managed to grow from a hot dog seller to the biggest caterer in Russia. Putin has seen firsthand how Prigozhin uh, works under pressure when he sort of has to wine and dine all these world leaders. So I think Putin trusted Prigozhin with this job. Despite the fact that Prigozhin had no military experience, he recognized in him a very organized manager. And I think eventually it paid off for Putin. Okay, so what happens next, we've covered in a previous episode on the Wagner Group at the very beginning of the war in Ukraine. But in brief, Prigozhin continues supplying food to the Russian army in different places. But now he's also sending fighters, mercenaries. They're appearing in Syria. Russian mercenaries have been accused of grave human rights abuses that in some cases, experts say could amount to war crimes. When Russia intervenes in parts of Latin America, in Libya. Russian private military group Wagner which has close links to the Kremlin, has about 2,000 personnel in country. And everywhere they go, allegations and evidence of terrible war crimes follow. Just how elite is this unit? 
Well, in terms of Russian forces in general, it's the most elite unit that they have. Prigozhin is denying he's linked to the group in any way, and officially, they're a separate entity to the Russian government. Incredibly, Prigozhin wasn't just fighting wars on the ground, he was also linked to the notorious Internet Research Agency, the Russian troll farm accused of trying to meddle in the 2016 US presidential election. And then, of course, in March last year, Russia invades Ukraine, and it's the beginning of a whole new chapter for the Wagner Group. Piotr, at what point do they become involved? So the last time we spoke in uh, March, uh, Wagner wasn't yet in Ukraine, which is very interesting if you think about it now. I think Wagner became involved you know, around April, early May, when it became clear that Russia wasn't going to win this war the way they planned it initially, which was sort of a quick lightning invasion of Ukraine in three days. Now, despite the days of battlefield setbacks, the Kremlin's top spokesman insists the war is on track. He is losing. And the battlefield reality he faces is, I think, irreversible. In other words... Interesting. So Putin has another problem and he turns again to Wagner to help him solve it. Exactly, yes. The usual methods didn't work. You know, the army didn't do his job. So Putin started to look around and there was Prigozhin again saying, I'm here, I'm available, I'll help you out in this situation. And so in those early days of their involvement in the war, what kind of role do they play? And where was Prigozhin in all of this? So at the start, we still see Prigozhin being quite careful about his public image. He's not giving as many interviews as we might expect. He's still denying that he has any links to Wagner. Uh, Wagner soldiers are still sort of hiding, somewhat hiding their involvement in Ukraine. They're sort of helping the general army with a few battles, but they're not playing a crucial role at the start of the war. And so then at what point does that change? At what point does Prigozhin step out from the shadows and say, I'm the head of Wagner and we are involved in this war? The turning point really came in September last year when this bizarre video came out that showed a bold man standing in military fatigues in front of a group of convicts in a prison. The man was Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, and he was pitching them on that day to come join his Wagner group, and if they would fight and survive for six months, they would be free. Wow. And this is really the first time we see on camera that he's admitting that he is the owner of Wagner. And we're also learning that he's now recruiting prisoners. And since then, he's recruited over 40,000 prisoners. 40,000 prisoners. There are 40,000 prisoners fighting for the Russians in Ukraine. Yeah, this is sort of according to both Russian NGOs estimates and Western intelligence estimates. I've spoken to four of those prisoners who weren't recruited, but who were there on the day Prigozhin visited them uh, in different prisons. Uh, and they told me roughly the same story as we've seen in this video, that he comes there, he makes his pitch, and, and they said that a lot of prisoners listen to him because they recognize in him a fellow convict. You know, he knows how to speak to prisoners. He spent almost a decade in prison. So one of the prisoners told me, when he speaks, we all shut up because we trust him and respect him. And this is always the you know, a fascinating detail to me to see this guy who in the 90s and 2000s dying the elite was now flying into prisons himself. You know, he doesn't have to do this. He has a whole team 
but it seems like he really gets a thrill out of talking to these prisoners and, and, and being their sort of leader. And so that move is is shocking in and of itself, and I want to talk about it. But first, it seems clear that after this video, any illusion that Prigozhin was not the head of Wagner, was not at the very centre of this organisation, is all out the window. He's public now. Yeah, no, he's public. And um, for years, he sued journalists, uh, both in Russia and abroad, who wrote that Wagner and Prigozhin were linked. Um, so after years and years of denying and, and repressing any news that he's linked to Wagner, we see this video and then he also comes out as publicly as the head of Wagner. So this is really, a, we're seeing a different Prigozhin. And so Piotr, if the Wagner group has recruited 40,000 prisoners, their entire force in Ukraine is estimated to be about 50,000 people. So for all intents and purposes, it's an army of prisoners fighting there. How do they operate? How do you operate in a country like Ukraine when most of the people under your command are convicted men? This is a good question. And um, I've spoken to a former Wagner commander who fought in Syria, who has sort of since left the group and is, uh, has come out against the group, uh, Marat Kabir Dulin. And he really described to me that Wagner went from sort of a band of brothers, how he described it, to a group of Serbs. You know, this sort of really low qualified army that is actually just tied together by strict discipline. What, what kind of discipline? Well, we're hearing various harrowing stories of fighters, ex-convicts being executed by their own Wagner commanders for not following orders. And what is it like for the Ukrainians to fight against prisoners? Is it different somehow to fighting against Russian soldiers, even those who have been mobilized and perhaps haven't been so well trained? Yeah, that's a good question. And we've seen anecdotal reports of Ukrainian soldiers complaining that it's very hard to fight against Wagner conscripts because the Russian sort of leadership doesn't care about their lives. So it's just as if you're fighting wave after wave of soldiers. CNN has obtained a Ukrainian military document that outlines the unique threat posed by the Russian mercenary group Wagner. So last week CNN reported, based on Ukrainian intelligence that they've seen, that Kiev was actually very concerned about Wagner and especially prisoners that were fighting against their soldiers. The tasks are set to be as primitive as possible. To achieve the goal, many assault groups are deployed and attacks can be carried out for a long period of time without regard to losses. The deaths of thousands of Wagner soldiers do not matter to Russian society. The military Ukraine's concerns are about the fact that Wagner doesn't care about the losses it's making. So it can just send its troops to fight against Ukrainian soldiers like zombies. That must be very demoralizing for the Ukrainian army. What happens if these conscripts try to run away, don't want to run into the direction of Ukrainian guns? So we know one guy, Evgeny Nuzhin. He was a uh, former prisoner. He spent time in Russian jail for murder. He was uh, called up by Prigozhin and he joined the army. Then he quickly ran to Ukraine, uh, deserted, and in Kiev he gave a bunch of interviews about the fact that he always wanted to sort of desert, that he was against Wagner, he was criticizing Prigozhin. And then, next thing we know, we see a video of Nuzhin. We don't know where, but in the video he's being executed with a sledgehammer. God. A very graphic, very horrible video. 
and Prigozhin is asked about this video and he says a dog dies a dog's death. Uh, the general understanding is that uh, Nuzhin was traded, so he was uh, sent back to Russia and there the Wagner soldiers took revenge on him. So this is sort of just one example of what could happen to someone who tries to desert. Wagner fighters have been linked to human rights abuses around the world, but how do those contract soldiers, the ones who signed up as a job, feel about being part of an army that's now largely made up of prisoners? convicted men who are often just used as cannon fodder. So in December, I got in touch with one Wagner commander who had serious complaints and worries about what was going on. His name is Andrei Medvedev. He's a 26-year-old uh, orphan from Siberia who first fought in Ukraine in 2014. After that, he spent some years in jail, and after he left jail, he joined Wagner at, at the beginning of May. Um, and he spent three months fighting as part of Wagner in the east of Ukraine, specifically in Bakhmut. This is sort of the main town that Wagner has been trying to capture for, for months now. So he was in Ukraine. What did he do next? He decided to flee. He said he saw some horrible uh, and shocking things. He, he said he saw at least 10 other Wagner soldiers. Some of them were prisoners, former prisoners, some were just contract soldiers, uh, executed for not following orders. And that really shocked him to the core, he said. He's, he was worried he would be next. So he decided to flee. Uh, he managed to get out of Ukraine and into Russia. And, and then um, I got in touch with him. He was on the run, so I would never specifically know where he was. Uh, he would sometimes call me late at night. He would sometimes call me early in the morning. You can see he was clearly stressed. He was scared. He would be the next Nuzhin. Didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to get out of Russia. And then for a while, I heard nothing. Until two weeks ago, when he reappeared in Norway, where he asked for asylum. Uh, and he's been living in a safe house ever since. And have you spoken to him since he escaped Norway? Yes, he called me a few times. He is uh, not in the best mental state at the moment. I think he's still worried that Norway will send him back to Russia. Medvedev himself says that he's ready to give this sort of big tell-all on Wagner, on Prigozhin. He wants to give his testimony for The Hague. So I think this story will only develop. <laughs> Coming up, Yevgeny Prigozhin is gathering vast power in Russia. So, what does he want to do with it? So, Pyotr, by now, Prigozhin is out of the shadows, he's in Ukraine, he's often pictured on the ground with Wagner troops. How has this new role changed his profile inside Russia? It changed radically. You know, before the general understanding amongst sort of other politicians, oligarchs, officials, was that Prigozhin had no direct ambition for power. But with the war in Ukraine, we've seen him sort of rising as the face of the invasion. He is the only public persona who really travels to the front lines. He has repeatedly criticized the Ministry of Defense, including Shoigu, the defense minister, an old friend of Putin. He's called the Ministry of Defense incapable of doing their job. So 
he has really become sort of a political persona of his own. And that has caused a lot of tensions um, within sort of the political elite. Many want his head. Uh, he's attacked oligarchs. He really portrays himself as sort of this anti-elitist man of the people. And on the ground in Ukraine, who does he answer to? I mean, if he's criticizing the defense ministry, under whose command is Wagner and its fighters? It seems like from the, the conversation I had with former commanders, Wagner has his own structure. So the soldiers really have their own commanders. They're, they operate outside the Ministry of Defense. But at the same time, they're completely reliant on logistics, on intelligence from the Ministry of Defense and from the regular army. So it's a strange situation where Wagner has his own thing going on, but without the Ministry of Defense, it would be impossible to survive. You know, I'm sure the Ministry of Defense and the Russian army would love to just cut all ties with Wagner, but as long as he is needed and as long as Putin wants Prigozhin to survive, he is there. So do you think the role he's playing in Ukraine now is the role that Putin wants him to play? For now, he's sort of achieving the goals that Putin wants him to achieve. You know, he, he's, he's taking Solidar, a, a town outside Bakhmut. Uh, there's a big chance he'll take Bakhmut, which is sort of a quite strategically and symbolically important place. The question is, how long can he keep this going? We know that thousands and thousands of prisoners have already died. Of course, he can recruit new ones, but eventually he will run out of troops. But this is also vintage Putin to try to play all different fractions against each other. So at the moment, you have the Ministry of Defense together with the regular army, and you've got Prigozhin, and they're fighting for competition and for influence. This is the way Putin usually operates. He likes to put fractions against each other and see what works best and who fights better. Just to show how so big Wagner has become, the US has said that it now designates Wagner as a transnational criminal organization. The Department of Treasury will be designating Wagner as a significant transnational criminal organization under Executive Order 13581 as amended. It's really a sign that the US really sees him as one of the most powerful men in Russia. Piotr, it's incredible when you think of all the controversies surrounding Russia over the past decade, from the 2014 annexation of parts of Ukraine, to their involvement in Syria and parts of Africa, to their interference in the 2016 presidential election, and now this full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's like wherever you look, there's Yevgeny Prigozhin right at the centre of it. Yes, um, and I think his rise is really symbolic to how Russia has changed for a while, Russia was interfering in all these places without openly admitting it. They always needed a man like Prigozhin sort of to operate on their behalf, so they sort of could deny that their direct involvement. With the war in Ukraine, this deniability has evaporated, and many thought that now Russia won't need Prigozhin anymore. But I mean, I think the essence of Prigozhin is, is that he always manages to reinvent himself, no matter how Russia changes. Well, he sounds like a problem solver. Putin has turned to him again and again to get him out of whatever bind he might be in. But I wonder, longer term, has Putin taken a risk here by allowing the creation of a group like Wagner and someone like Prigozhin to become so powerful and so prominent? People we talk to believe that if Prigozhin sees that Putin's power is shaking, he will go for him. He will try to profit from it. He might take a shot at power make new alliances. But at the same time, Prigozhin has made a lot of enemies over the years. He doesn't really have a massive support base outside of Putin. 
and that's the reason why we see him acting more and more aggressive with the day is because he knows that the moment he is not needed for Putin anymore, he could be shoved aside. And Piotr, finally, what do you think this whole story, the rise of a man like Evgeny Prigozhin and Wagner, tells us about Putin's government in Russia today? I think it ultimately tells us that Putin is very opportunistic and that he always looks for ways and people that could help him in his current situation. You know, Prigozhin was never part of the plan in Ukraine. We know that because he, he wasn't involved in invasion planning. He wasn't involved in the first month of Ukraine. But when Putin realized that uh, the war wasn't going to plan, he turned to a man like Prigozhin and he turned to options like recruiting 40,000 prisoners, which is not something Putin would have wanted at the start of war. It's obviously not a good look that you're resorting to killers and rapists to solve your problems in Ukraine. So I think it really shows that for Putin, it's more about finding a solution than anything else. And that someone like Prigozhin is opportunistic enough to be in the right place at the right time. Exactly. For Prigozhin, this is uh, his moment to shine. And he himself also realized that he was needed. What will happen when this war comes down? That's that's another very interesting question. If Prigozhin manages to keep his political capital or if he gets shoved away by one of the many enemies that he's made over the last year. Hmm. Piotr, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Piotr Sawyer, whose profile of Yevgeny Prigozhin, written with Guardian foreign correspondent Sean Walker, you can read at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Ned Carter-Miles. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.